And again, a big welcome to any visitors with us today. There are a few, few I have a few personal visitors here. Uh, my cousin John is here from Kentucky, spent the week with me, and then uh, the, the wife of my dad's best friend, Lisa, is sitting right next to him uh, down here from Rock Hill. So if you see them afterwards, give them a warm welcome, plus any other visitors who might be with us today. Uh, so we are uh, on the second Sunday of Advent, continuing a little series on prayer, specifically a series on the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. It's the prayer that he urges all of us to use. Uh, we, in fact, we use it every Sunday here at Christ the King Grace. Uh, so it's super duper familiar. And for that very reason, it can become a little bit formulaic. Something that we sort of utter in an unthinking, perfunctory manner. And that's not what we want to be happening. Which is why for the next few weeks, we're going to put the Lord's Prayer in slow motion and dwell a little bit with each line of it. So that's what's in store but before I say anything else, let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we open scripture, give us ears to hear, give us hearts and minds which are receptive, and we pray that you would impact us with your word. Make us more prayerful, just like you were, Jesus. Amen. So in the New Testament, Jesus gives us many, many gifts, and one of the best gifts that he gives us is found right there in Matthew 6. It's the grandest prayer that's ever been prayed. Um, of all the prayers that human beings have ever spoken or launched, this is the best and most repeated prayer. I think that's safe to say, which means we should pay attention because getting advice from Jesus on praying is like getting advice from Warren Buffett on investing. Why wouldn't you pay attention? Uh, so let's listen in. And what I want to do today is listen in particularly on verses 9 and 10. Uh, verses 9 and 10. Let's say those words together right now. They're on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So first thing we want to notice is that when we pray to God, according to Jesus, we call him our Father. And that reminds us, as I said last Sunday, that prayer is not just uh, worrying out loud or wishful thinking, but really it's a conversation with the living God. And it's not a formal conversation so much as an intimate conversation. Because in this conversation we address God in really, really personal terms. In intimate relationships in our lives, we often use private names, terms of endearment. Uh, couples in love do this. Parents do this for their kids. Cindy calls our daughter Audrey Moncourt, which in French means my heart. I think that's very beautiful. Uh, she calls Hugo Mon Petit Chou, which means my little cauliflower. Uh, in France, it always goes back to food. Um, when I was growing up, they called me doggy. Uh, some of them still do, and I get a text from my cousin Susan that says, hey, doggy, I always smile. And by the way, if you think that's strange, my sister had it worse. She was called worm. I have no idea why. <laughs> so anyway, according to Jesus, this is kind of how we're supposed to address God in an intimate and personal way, our Father. And both of those two words are really important. Uh, these words remind us that when we talk to God, we're talking to someone in whose eyes I'm special, uh, I'm cherished. But we're also reminded that I'm not more special than everybody else because every single human being that I see is loved by the Father heart of God. He's our Father. And that's really important to remember because uh, uh, it's important to remember that the heart of God is loving and good. And it's important to remember that because there's a guy called Oswald Chambers, and I think he pinned the tail on the donkey. He said, all sin is rooted in the belief, the suspicion, that God is not good. That God's heart is not good towards us. You will be tempted to believe this. 
Everybody will be tempted to believe this, since Adam and Eve, humans, have been tempted to believe this, to start thinking that God is not, in fact, a good and a loving Father, which is precisely why Jesus says, when you pray, I want you to begin by saying, Our Father, my Father, who art in heaven. Let's say that again, together. Our Father, who art in heaven. Speaking of heaven, let's move along to that. According to the Lord's Prayer, heaven is where God is. Now, when you think about heaven, when you hear that word, what do you think about? Which is closer, heaven or Georgetown? (laughs) Which is closer, heaven or Merle's Inlet? You probably think Merle's Inlet. Heaven's far, far away. But here's the thing. Literally, Jesus says, the Greek in these verses, he says, our Father in the heavens. And it's plural for a reason. Because in the ancient world, heaven was conceived of as having different levels, different domains. So there there was a heaven way up high where the stars are. And then there was a little bit lower heaven that is the sky above our heads where the birds fly. But the heavens in the ancient world, in the ancient mind, also encompassed all the air right around me. That was also part of the heavens, which means that when we pray, our Father in heaven, we're basically saying our Father who is closer than the air I breathe. Our Father who is closer than the air I breathe. In other words, don't think of God as being far, far away. Think of God as someone who is as close to you as the air going into your lungs right now. Where is God? He's in the heavens. Where is the heavens? Right here. So class, where is God? Right here. He's right here. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's continue now to the last bit of verse 9. This is where the first petition in the Lord's Prayer comes, the first request that that is made in this prayer. And what is the request? The request is that uh, God's name would be hallowed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name or thy name. Now, to understand the significance of this part of the Lord's Prayer, it's good to reflect a little bit on naming and on the significance of names. These days, certainly in our part of the world, the late modern Western world, parents commonly pick a name because they like the way it sounds or maybe it was associated with someone that was important, like a grandmother, grandfather, for example. One of my grandmothers was called Posse. Uh, Nobody has recycled that name yet. It's a shame because she was quite the woman, so if you're looking for a baby name, feel free to use that name, Posse. But I digress. Uh, In contrast, our modern Western approach to naming, in biblical times, in the time of Jesus, names were vested with a lot of significance. Uh, A name was believed to reveal a person's character and to shape their destiny. Very significant. So, for example, in the Old Testament, if you read around, you meet a guy in 1 Samuel called Nabal. And that word in Hebrew means fool. And if you know the story of Nabal, you know that he lived up to his name. He was a fool. Uh, I'm sure he regretted the fact that his parents named him that. Uh, Another example in the New Testament, probably more more well known. uh, Jesus had a guy that followed him called Simon. And when Jesus first met Simon, Simon's character was about as solid as water. Uh, But then Jesus gave Simon a new name. He called him Peter. And that word means rock. And as Simon Peter followed Jesus, he became a rock-solid follower of Jesus. So the name is significant. It's helpful to keep that in mind as we uh, see Jesus saying to us, pray to God, hallowed be your name. Now the word hallowed, it comes from the same word as holy. That's the word you hear a lot around churches. And uh, so when we pray this, we're praying that God's name would be sort of holy and set apart and sacred. Now God's name is, of course, already all of these things. So what we're actually praying for is that God would reveal to us individually that his character is all of those things. It is sacred, it is set apart, it is holy. And and to speak of God as holy is also to speak of him as being good and loving. 
And so we are praying that God would reveal his name, his character to us as epitomizing everything that is good and true and beautiful. I like to put it this way. We are praying that God's reputation on earth would be greatly enhanced. That's what we're praying. Hallowed be your name. Enhanced in our lives, enhanced in the lives of all the people around us, that everybody would come to see and realize and feel how wonderful God is. And as a result of that, worship, adore, and praise God. That's what we're praying. Hallowed be your name. Now I want to pause here for a second because some of you, and understandably so, might think this is a little bit weird. You might be thinking to yourself, why does God want to be adored and worshipped? Is this some sort of cosmic narcissist who needs people to prop up his ego? You worship me. Uh, and here's the thing. Giving worship and adoration to God is not something that we do to boost God's self-esteem. That's not what this is about. One of my favorite writers, someone you'll hear me talk about often, a guy called C.S. Lewis, I think he helps clarify this. He says, when we see something we love, something that strikes us, we naturally desire to praise it, to celebrate it, to sing about it. So, just imagine how frustrating it would have been if you were at the Orange Bowl last year when the Bulldogs trounced the Wolverines. And I'm sorry, Chris Bridgman, about that, and I'm sorry it might happen again this year at the National Championship. But if you had been there, uh, and what if you were there and you weren't allowed to cheer? I mean, that would be horrible, oppressive, unnatural. And that's precisely the point. When we see something worthy of praise, part of our joy is to be able to express that praise. For all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. Praise for your beloved, praise, fans praising a team, praise for food or a sunset or doggies, praise for God, the one who is more worthy of praise than all else. Hallowed be your name. Lord, let us see all that makes you so astoundingly wonderful. Let us see that you are the very definition of that which is good and true and beautiful. That is what this part of the Lord's Prayer is about. Now, at this point, I want to offer a few practical tips for hallowing God's name in our lives. Because this is something that we pray for, but it's also, it's also a prayer that we can take, a, take part in answering. We can uh, participate in the process of hallowing God's name. Along these lines, just thinking of my own life, uh, one thing that I sometimes do is look at the Psalms, which are right there in the middle of the Bible. Take Psalm 73, for example. That's a Psalm that deals with envy, with, with a, someone's struggle with envy. And that is something that I have struggled with at times, envy and resentment. Just like the writer of Psalm 73, I have sometimes felt envy and resentment. When I look around, I see people getting ahead of me, and they're doing that by cheating or lying or bending the rules, and I feel disadvantaged because I have a commitment to try not to cheat and lie and bend the rules, so I haven't always done that perfectly. And in those situations, I can be filled up with some envy and resentment. And in those moments, it's really helpful for me to rehallow God's name by going to Psalm 73. Sometimes I try to memorize a little bit of it to remind me who God is, of what God's name means that I am always with him, that he holds my right hand, that he guides me with his counsel, that he will take me into glory, that even when my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. And that's been a really helpful exercise for me, getting a fresh vision of God's goodness, rehallowing his name, and when I do that, the envy and the resentment, they leave because they cannot coexist with that. So that's one practical tip. Another practical tip um, of hallowing God's name, of seeing God's reputation greatly enhanced in the world, is to pray that God would reveal his holiness not just to us, but also through us, through our lives. 
a writer that I admire and respect, a writer who challenges me, once observed this. He observed that the strongest argument against Christianity can sometimes be Christians. When we are somber and joyless, when we are self-righteous and smug, when we are narrow and repressive, when that happens, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. But on the flip side, he writes that sometimes the best argument for Christianity can be Christians. When there's joy and love, hope, completeness, when we participate in works of mercy and love for one another and even for our enemies, when we embody 1 John 4.12, which states that although nobody has ever seen God, when we love others, we make God known and he becomes visible. I've experienced that personally. For me, God was made visible through a dear friend called Luke. I think there's a picture of Luke that's going to pop up. There he is. I Googled him a few days ago. I haven't seen him in years. Um, when I met Luke, this was 15 years ago, I was in a pretty rough place. I was not always a nice or pleasant person to be around, and that's an understatement. And Luke was there. He came into my life as a friend like I've never had one before, a deep follower of Christ. He was steadfast. And he said to me, Roger, if you ever need a place to stay, you can stay with me. If you need money, you've got my bank account. If you need time, I've got time for you. If you need a hug, my arms are open for you. And what happened through that friendship? I came to believe in, to know, and to experience the holiness of God's name, of God's goodness, beauty, truth through my friend Luke. And I am so grateful for that. In fact, if that hadn't happened, I would not be standing here in front of you right now. So thank you, Luke. And ever since that time, that is what I have tried in my own imperfect way to do for other people in the hope that God would reveal and hallow his name, not just to me, but also through me. We can all do this. You can do this. In fact, many of you are already doing this in our community and for each other. When our names are tucked into the character of Christ, other people come to see the holiness of God's name. Hallowed be his name. Let's steam along now to the second stanza of the Lord's Prayer we're going to look at today. That begins there in the first half of verse 10. Your kingdom come. Say that out loud with me. Your kingdom come. Now this is something that we pray not just for our own individual lives, but also for our community and for the wider world. Your kingdom come in our life, in this community, in the wider world. And when we pray this, we are asking God to make our lives, to make this community, to make our world better in all the ways that count. That's what we're asking for. Now, what, what might that look like? What if God's kingdom came in fullness and power right here in Polly's Island in Georgetown County? Let's imagine what things would look like for a second if that happened. If God's kingdom came in fullness and power right here, people would always speak the truth to one another. There would be no stealing and no thievery. There'd be no need for gates and garages for locks and security systems. Wouldn't need those anymore. There would be tremendous generosity toward each other, toward the poor. This is already a very generous place. Generosity would go to even greater levels. You could walk down any street at any time of the day and not have to worry or have fear about that. And everybody would regularly take a Sabbath, so we'd be working hard out of a place of rest and peace. And those who are married, they would honor their marriage vows. There would be no affairs. There'd be no families breaking up because of divorce and all the pain that goes with that. And parents would love their kids. They'd be attuned to them. They'd be patient with them. And they would steer their kids in a way that leads to flourishing. If all that happened, our town would be a little bit of, like a community set on a hill. Can you imagine that? That is what we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come. Now here's, here's something that's really worth noting. This kingdom reality that I've just been imagining for us, 
that has in fact sometimes manifest in this world of ours. It has radically burst forth. And one of those times was during the Welsh revival in the first five years of the 20th century. It's around 1904, 1905. The spirit of the living God was moving powerfully, I mean really powerfully, in Wales. It still leaves historians scratching their head. They can't make sense of it. It is said that people would be walking down the street and they would literally come under a conviction of their sin, fall to their knees, and call on Lord Jesus as their Savior. And within a six-month period, 150,000 people became Christians and were baptized. And the impact was colossal. The kingdom came. Everybody was singing that old hymn, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. We sing that sometime. That was the theme song of this revival. And as people were singing that song, the crime weight in Wales dropped by 50%. And in some communities, crime was completely eliminated. So what did the police officers do? They spent their time helping people get in and out of churches because there were so many people going in and out of the churches, it was a health and safety hazard. And some of the cops even formed quartets, and they would stand around singing gospel hymns on the road. And what about the judges? What did they do? Well, they got to the courthouse, and there was no cases. There were no crimes being committed. There was no stealing. There was no murder. There was no rape. It had all disappeared. And there were lots of other positive effects. At the end of the 19th century, alcoholism was rampant in Wales. But during the revival, alcohol consumption rates dropped off by over 50%, and dads who used to go to the bars and pubs and spend it all and drink started taking that money to buy their kids clothes and school supplies. It was dramatic. The kingdom came. Now, we cannot manufacture this, of course. We can't program this, but we can pray for it. And it's worth highlighting that the historians who have studied this revival and other revivals they note that these awakenings, they're called great awakenings, they tend to go back to a singular person or a small group of people gathered up together praying, people like you. People praying earnestly that God's spirit would move powerfully, praying, your kingdom come. And praying also, your will be done. So let's think about that last little line today as we wrap up. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, I expect most of you know who King David is in the Old Testament. He's very famous of the Israelite kings. Uh, there's a picture of King David I found in the attic. <laughs> it's amazing what you find in the archives of this church. I don't know where, how we got that. But anyway, there's David at the end of his life. Um, in the latter years, his health was failing, and he sensed in those moments that God was calling him to anoint his young son Solomon to be the next king of Israel. And so David began to make this known. I'm going to die soon, and I want Solomon to be the next king because I sense that is God's will here. But one of David's other sons, a guy called Adonijah, he got wind of this decision, and he was not happy because he wanted the throne for himself. And he apparently looked the part. He was tall, strapping, strong. You know, he looked the part of a king in a way that perhaps Solomon didn't. And so Adonijah declared, I will be king. And the next thing you know, he got some chariots and horses, raised a battalion, and he went on to try to usurp the throne from his younger brother Solomon. And he even got some army officers and some priests from the temple to join up with this uh, uh, effort to take the throne. And all these guys around Adonijah, they threw a banquet for him, and at the banquet they declared, long live Adonijah, the king. The upshot is that when Adonijah declared himself to be king, he got what he wanted in the short term, but it was short-lived because not too long after he died an ignominious death. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel. And the point is this. When we proclaim 
I will be king, in a way that pushes away the living God. In the short term, we might get what we want, but ultimately we're going to end up losing more. Our souls are going to shrink. We're going to lose our capacity for joy and for noble purpose in this life and in the world to come. That is the consistent teaching of Scripture. When Jesus, and so Jesus says, when you pray, pray, my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You might say that there are two kinds of people. There are those who say, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. Because people who insist on pushing away God, pushing away the, the true and living king, they can finally get what they've chosen. Here again, C.S. Lewis is helpful. He writes, and this is a great quote, he writes, hell is simply the trajectory of a self-absorbed, self-centered life without God going on forever and ever and ever. And that's what you get if you choose to say and to live, my will be done. If that's what you want, God will finally allow you to have it. Which is why, as has been said, the door to hell is locked from the inside. Conversely, when we pray to God, your will be done, you know what, you, you are going to experience hardship and affliction. Nobody's going to get a pass on that. But God will give you life and beauty and goodness in this world and in the age to come. Nobody better embodied this part of the Lord's Prayer than Jesus Christ himself. On the night before he was going to the cross so that he could die for my sins and for your sins, Jesus, Jesus Christ, who was the unique Son of God, but also fully human. He got on his knees and he wrestled with this in prayer. And he struggled and he prayed, God, if it is possible, let this awful cup pass away from me. But not my will be done, but thy will be done. Rather than choosing comfort, Jesus chose God's will. And he got violently executed. But on the third day, he rose again. Dazzlingly glorious and more powerful than ever before. And if we follow this same pattern, if we trust God the way that Jesus did, our Father in heaven will give us true and good and beautiful things in this life now, a real foretaste. And then he will give it to us in a superabundance in life in the age to come. Joy unspeakable, joy uninterruptible. That's what Jesus promises. It's all over the New Testament. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just saying it again. And so the question for us today, as we go in Advent towards Christmas, is do we believe that? And do we live like we believe that? Do you say in your heart, your will be done? This is all our hope as Christians. This is the hope we carry. And, and by the way, in the New Testament, hope means a sure and certain confidence. That's what hope means. And it is in that hope, it is in that sure and certain confidence that we pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.